And as we, as we prepare to kind of jump into this, um, there was something, again, this isn't necessarily in my, well, it's not in my notes, but it was just something as I was, I was thinking about. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus today. Uh, that's where we're at in the creed. We've been talking about God the Father, God the Creator, the Almighty, right? All of these things, I think, have actually come at a very opportune tune time because, right, the, the Apostles' Creed is not just a, uh, a dead statement of belief for our head, but it is something that is supposed to give life. Because while the Apostles' Creed is not itself Scripture, right, it's not itself Scripture, it comes from Scripture. A group of, of people came together, they looked at the Scriptures, and they said, here are some really important truths, but they're not just truths, they're the things that, that lead to life with Jesus Christ. They're the things that we must believe that will change our lives. And as I was thinking about this, I mean, I don't know, well, I do know about a lot of you, you guys, and I know about myself. It has been a tough season. I think for a lot of us in this room, it has been for, for various reasons, some more serious than others, some, you know, but for various reasons, for all of us, I think for many of us anyway, it's been a difficult season, a trying season. And it is in those seasons we can do one of two things. We can take, I think, what in some ways might be the, the easy route, but in reality it's actually the really difficult route, to just let our faith slip, to get caught up in, in the storm, and to allow, allow it to overtake us and to overwhelm us. Or the second thing, which I think is actually maybe in a way more difficult, but is actually easier, right? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for it is light. Right? His burden is light and his yoke is easy. Is to actually push in to Jesus. To not drift away, but to press into him as the one who holds us through the waves and through the storms. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This is not just some sort of dead academic exercise, but rather this is something I think for each one of us, it is something that we actually desperately need and we need to cling to as the place where we find life where we find the rescue from the storms of life that could easily otherwise overwhelm us. And so that's why, you know, it, like, that wasn't necessarily, you know, like, when we planned this series, what we were thinking about. But it was something that I think, you know, God knows better. You know, we pray through. We don't just, you know, like, kind of just nonchalantly throw stuff up on, you know, we try and pray through the things that, that we're, we're going to be preaching through. And, I, and honestly, I just think it came at a, at a fortuitous time, uh, maybe for, for many of us, because we need this reminder. These creeds, like I said, are not just like dead theology or some boring theology. They are life-giving truths that actually what they were made to do was to set the boundaries of, of faith. In many ways, to set the boundaries of faith. What do I mean by that? Right? As a kid, okay, as a kid, I remember my parents, you know, I, I grew up in America, and everything in America is like, you know, built on a grid, so you have like a, you have a block, right? And I remember as a kid, my parents said, all right, you can ride your bike around the block. But I was young, and so they're like, oh, we don't want you crossing the road. We don't want you doing things. But I could ride in a big square. I had a big boundary that I could ride in. I could, you know, go for a spin. Because again, it's America, so everything's huge. So I had a big square block that I could, I could you know, spin around in and, and no problem, right? But the temptation, even for a kid, is always to go like, yeah, but I mean, like, it's just across the road. You know, like, 
that's not that big of a deal, right? You know, and, and it's one of those like where, where we become tempted to, to do that. But, but what was the purpose of my parents giving me boundaries? Is it because they hated me and wanted to take away all my fun? No, it was because they loved me and they knew how little I paid attention to things and I could end up getting hit by a car because there wasn't a four-way stop coming down the road. In fact, it was coming down a hill. We were at the bottom of a hill where people tended to fly by on their cars, right? And so my parents set those rules for a reason. It wasn't to bring you know, death, it was to bring life, to say, we want you to stay alive and healthy and well, and so you're not going to cross that. Not yet, not at this point, right? And so the boundaries were set in a healthy way. And so what the creeds do in a way, and it's not just the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, there are more, right? But they all pretty much say the same things. They set the widest boundaries for the faith to say as Christians these are the these are some non-negotiable things right that to be a Christian this is what it means these are the things that Christians believe because what tends to happen is as human beings we're just like me on my bike we look at the other side and go well well maybe it's actually well, what if we just kind of pushed out into that unknown? And what ends up happening is actually the same temptations in our day are the exact same temptations that, that the snake came to Eve with in the garden, right? Did God really say, do you know what it is? He doesn't want you to enjoy all the knowledge to know good and evil. He doesn't really care about you, right? And, and, and I think about this, maybe I'm like the... Uh, the opposite of, of, of Luke Swain, because I'm about to criticize the Disney movie, right? We need, we need each other, right? We need each other here. No, um, but to say, it's not just Disney movies, and it's not every Disney movie, but I think a tendency within our culture, right? The storylines that we are constantly fed and constantly tempted to believe, right? What ends up happening? We have a character who is, who is tightly bound into some sort of strict, rigid rules, right? They've been put in a box, but they don't belong in that box. They belong to break free, you know? And so like, and so what is the story? They, they go completely against their families and their parents or, or whoever it was who were the bad guys in the story, at least at first. And they break free from that. They go out of the bonds and way out into the world. And what do they discover? Everything is wonderful. And everybody else is just missing out on all these wonderful things because they just obey the rules and they follow the rules, right? And so then they come back. So they're society and they say, guys, here's all the beauty that we're missing. And everybody goes, oh, you're right. We've been missing this the whole time. Party! And everything is wonderful, right? That, I think, is a pretty good plot line of a lot of kids' movies. Okay? That's the plot line. And we believe that. And you say, oh, no, it's just a silly movie. Except we've been fed that so much that we believe that story constantly. God's just trying to suck all the fun out of things, or these rules are there to, you know, to oppress me, and if I could just break free, then I would be happy. Except that when we look around, the story of our society is that's just not the case. Lots of people have broken free out of those rules, and we live in a world that is actually pretty miserable overall. When you look at, I mean, if any scientific studies are, are to be accurate on that, we live in a culture of people who are full of anxiety and worry and fear and, you know, like, overwhelmed. You know, like, that's... So all that to say that that is our tendency. And so these creeds are actually helpful to say, hold on, these boundaries that have been set are there for my good and they're there to bring life. These pillars of the faith, these things that we say, these are non-negotiable. They're there because they bring life. I said a moment ago that we're not ahistorical. We're not independent 
of, of history. Our faith is a historical one rooted in history with a long, rich history to draw from. Not everything has been good, right? Not everything has been good. But there is a long, rich history, and we would do well to look back at that history regularly rather than to pretend we're the first people to go through all of these things that we're going through, but rather to look back in history and say, how did other people navigate these same issues that I have? And you know what? Like I said, there is a deep well to draw from, right? And obviously it starts with Scripture, but there's been a whole lot of people that have had to navigate the same issues and the same problems and the same trials that we have throughout history. And so it is helpful that we remember that our faith is rooted in history and that we navigate our complex and complicated world faithfully to the best of our ability by going first and foremost to Scripture, but then also asking what have other people said about this as well. I think all of those things are, are helpful. So there's like kind of a, a free sort of, as we've been going through the creed, um, introduction. But let's talk about our specific, uh, our specific sermon. So here's what, here's what I think we'll do. We'll, we'll go ahead and start just like we have um, with every uh, sermon so far, right? And we will read uh, the creed. Now, one of the things that, that has been, I think, importantly noted every single time is there is a couple of sticking points in there where people kind of go like, wait a second, right? Um, so the Holy Catholic Church, right? That word Catholic, okay, I think this is important. It means universal, okay? So when it uses that word, in fact, some, some people over the years, you know, as people have gotten more uncomfortable with using the Catholic Church because it sounds like, oh, the church down the road or whatever, is to say universal church or one holy church, uh, you know, but it's that idea that actually there is a unity that things like when we say, hey, we agree on this, there is a unity, an umbrella that we all stand under in the faith as one church. Jesus did not come with multiple and many denominations. He came with one church, right? He brought one church. The Holy Spirit has birthed one church. And while there may be many um, sort of distinctions or many differences between denominations, we are all still one church united under faith in, in Jesus Christ. So that's what that, that's what that means. And then the other one of, of descended into hell. And that is one, uh, again, that word can mean just death, descended into death or descended into darkness. Or, or the word is actually Hades, which can be like the underworld. In other words, what it's trying to say there is that Jesus was actually dead, right? He was dead, dead, okay? And, and so that seems to be at least the earliest interpretation that we have of that phrase. Okay, so there you go. There's the two sticking points. We've talked about them again. You'll get them probably next week, I'm sure. Again, the reminder uh, as we go through. But I think it is helpful to kind of unpack the language here. So let's go ahead and let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
Amen. Amen. So this morning we begin the second part of the creed. This morning we begin by looking at the first three things that it says about Jesus. We believe, or I believe, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. As Christians, we believe that the main goal, the central theme of the scriptures is pointing us to Jesus. That the Bible really is an entire collection of books that are all pointing us to Jesus. It's one of the amazing things about scripture to think something written so far before Jesus, things written after Jesus, could all come together almost like a beautiful quilt that speaks of Jesus. One author says it this way, every story whispers his name. Not every exact verse in scripture is exactly about Jesus, but the overall theme of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. He is the center of everything because he is God made flesh who came to redeem and to rescue a people for himself so that you and I could be adopted as his sons and his daughters. That is what we believe. And so this section of the creed is actually by far the longest, right? It's very little, there's, you know, it's very short, the part about, about God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, right? That's short. And then the Holy Spirit, it's a really short, you know, about the church, it's really short. But this chunk about Jesus is long, right? As far as the creed is concerned, it's not really that long, but as far as it's a short creed. So in comparison, it is much longer. I think there's a couple reasons for that. First off, what you have at the time that this creed is written, you begin to have some questioning about who Jesus actually was, right? Because we're now a few hundred years past his death. There becomes some controversy where people are really, what they're doing is they're trying to marry kind of Greek-Roman philosophy and trying to make an apologetic that, like, in other words, trying to make a defense for the faith that would convince all of these snobby philosophers up in Rome and in Athens and all these kinds of places where they could go to them and, con and, and convince them that Jesus is, is, uh, is, you know, that it's worth being a Christian. And so what ends up happening is they, they start bringing these together. And there's one called Arianism. And then there's Gnosticism, which is kind of around Alexandria, especially in Egypt. But you get these two kind of versions. One that says, yeah, Jesus was just a man because that becomes very palatable to people. He was a great teacher. He was a good man. Uh, you know, all of this. He's even, hey, he's even the savior. He's just a created being like you and me, but God did a special thing through him. All this kind of stuff because, hey, when you start calling Jesus God, that can sound weird to people. And we don't want people to think we're weird. And so like all of a sudden, and this is honestly, guys, these temptations are not new, right? Okay. So these people, they start changing it a little bit, right? To try and really appeal to people that they felt like would look down on them. And then there's Gnosticism, which is the other side of it. Now, we don't know tons about Gnosticism, but what we do know is what they believed is that matter was evil, and therefore Jesus could not have actually become a human being because that would be evil. And so, in order to appeal, again, to, to all of these people with their Greek philosophy, they would say, well, people just thought Jesus was a human. 
but he wasn't actually a human. He was more like a ghost that felt real, that seemed real, but he wasn't really human, right? And so this is all kind of happening at the moment, but the vast majority of people who followed Jesus were like, people, like that is not what the scriptures say, right? They're going like, no, uh-uh, this is not good. This is bad. And so things like these creeds begin to pop up, right? Where they say, no, that is outside the bounds of Christianity because as Christians here's what we believe and so Jesus takes the largest chunk of that because if you can believe in Jesus and, and that Jesus is God the other two things really I think kind of fall in fall fall in line they're not that far of a stretch um, they're not that difficult to 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 believe but the one about Jesus faced controversy the other reason is this. I think Jesus and, and the writers of the Apostles' Creed and the writers even of, you know, whether that's Paul or, or, or Peter, or like they recognize that thing, everything is about Jesus. And so this creed, this is the beginning of the center, right? They put Jesus at the center of the creed. This is the beginning of the center and central part of the creed. It is purposeful because Jesus is the center of everything. And so we start this morning, where what we're going to use as our main text as we, as we talk about this this morning is what, what um, Sam read for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 to 11. Now, Philippians 5 to 11 is a really interesting passage because it's a poem. Now, it is possible that Paul was actually, among other things, besides a great philosopher, besides a great teacher, besides an incredible intellect, also a wonderful poet. That is possible. But what is most people would, would think is that here and in Colossians 1, what we read together, that Paul is taking actually already hymns that the church were sing, was singing and brought them into his scriptures and just quoted them into, into, into his letter as he writes them. It's something that people would have been familiar with because it has the feeling of a creed already, that it was something that people would say together. Here's what we affirm about God. And maybe they said it, maybe they sang it, maybe they did either both. We don't know, but it has this feeling of a, of a hymn to it. And so it has this beauty and this rhythm about it. But in it, we find all three descriptions of Jesus that the creed, that the part of the creed we're going to look at this morning addresses. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And so let's, uh, let's just read this again. It won't take long, right? It's, it's just a couple of verses, but I think it's good to, uh, to read it once again. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human, er, sorry, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right, let's begin to unpack this. And we'll start, we'll start actually, rather than starting where the creed starts, right? Believe in Jesus Christ. We're going to start with where Paul starts in Philippians. 
And here's what he said, right? Though he was God. And maybe yours says uh, being in the form of God. Okay? He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So we're going to start with this. Jesus is the only son. He is fully God. He is deity. Now, this can be, uh, I think, something difficult to grasp. And maybe you're going, well, it says form, right? The New Living Translation actually just says, though he was God. Okay? And so you may be like, well, I don't know, because it says form there. It does say form. Well, here's what you need to understand. Okay, that word form, when we think of it in English, we tend to think of a shape, right? <laughs> but in the Greek, and this is why one of those, again, translation is hard. Right? If you speak another language, you know this, that sometimes translation just is, it's difficult to get things across, right? And so it, it is one of those where it carries this idea, not of a shape, it's this word morpho is the word, and it, but it, it means more of like the essence of something. It is the same as something. It has the same substance, the same identity, the same DNA, right, as, as something else. It is of the same Substance. That is what Paul is saying there when he uses that word morpho, which is why, again, the New Living just tries to uncomplicate it and just says, though he was God. Because when we start using the word form, it can become confusing, I think, in the English language. So he says, though he was God, he did not think of God as something to cling to, or equality with God as something to cling to. And again, like I said, I think this is a difficult concept to grasp, right? I mean, like, let's just be honest, right? When we start saying, well, like, okay, the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet they're one, like, that's difficult to wrap our heads around. And, and look, I'm not, I'll, I'll leave this for the next person who's going to talk about being born of the Virgin Mary, all of that sort of thing. We'll, we'll leave that for next week um, to some degree. But here's what I want to say, just as we kind of just briefly on this idea of the Trinity, recognizing that it is difficult to grasp. It was too also for people, it was too also, it was also for people at the time of the creed, which is why it's in there, right? It is in there because it is something that is not always easy to grasp, yet it is an indispensable part of the Christian faith. This idea that Jesus is God, that he is equal with the Father. This idea that he is equal with the Holy Spirit, that the three of them are one, is indispensable to the Christian faith. Because we cannot think of the one God apart from this idea of, of the Trinity. And, and that, again, is, is, is when, if we, if we want to just make Jesus a person. Right? And there have been, again, there's sects or things, right? I talked about earlier, like the early church, there were problems with this. One of the main ones was uh, what was later declared a heresy called Arianism, right? Where a guy named Arius, he wanted to say, no, 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 no. Jesus is just a created being, the firstborn of all creation. That's it. Like, he's only special because God gave him a special role and he was the first one. And like, but he's just a created being. And, and there's a lot of complication that goes with that. Long story short, Arius basically ends up in many ways with a similar view of God to Islam. Where you have Jesus is more like Muhammad, 
where he's just kind of a prophet who's a special guy who's been inspired by God. And then, you know, like he's definitely special, but I mean, he's getting closer to Islam really than he is to Christianity. And this is where the church steps in and goes, no, 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 this is wrong. But throughout history, there's been, there's been different sects. Like, for instance, now we, we could think of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus. He's not God. He's just a created being. Okay? Mormons would be the same. It's one of the reasons at, that we uh, as a church would look at Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and say, I'm sorry, but they are not our brothers and sisters in Christ because they don't believe the same thing we do about Jesus. And we believe that that is a central and key and important part of the Christian faith. And here's why. Okay, just, just two reasons. There are more, but here's why. First off, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is not just the Son, but the eternal Son. Right? He is the only Son and the eternal Son. You and I are adopted because of what Jesus has done for us into the family. Right? But Jesus is the one and only Son, the eternal Son. And because of that, what we find then is that God is actually a community, which is crazy. He is one, but he is also a community within himself. And because of that, he's loving and enjoying, giving and sharing. And all of these things were true about God from eternity. If Jesus has not been around for eternity, if he is just simply a created being, then there was a time, and I realize we're getting into philosophy here, but there was a time then when God was not loving because he didn't have anybody to love. How could he be loving? If Jesus is just a created being, then there was a time where many of the attributes about God would have been impossible. Many of the core things that we say, this is who God is, would be impossible because you can't do it in isolation, right? God could not be loving. God could not be kind. God could not be generous. <laughs> if Jesus is just a created being, we read in the scriptures that only God can save. And if Jesus is just simply a created being, then Jesus cannot redeem humanity. What we believe about Jesus actually is really important. It's not something we can kind of just shrug our shoulders and say it's not a big deal. And that's one of the reasons that Paul addresses this so strongly, both in Colossians and in Philippians, and other places too, but very clearly there. But here's the final thing. What we believe as Christians, put in a positive way, is that from before time began, from eternity, the Father, Son, and Spirit have been living in community with one another, in a self-giving love with one another, sharing in joy, sharing in peace, sharing in love. And yet they are one. And again, I understand, listen, this is a mystery, okay? There's a bit of mystery to this. I'm not gonna be able to stand up here and explain it to you in some crystal clear way. But we exist then as human beings as an overflow of the love of God. That he created us to enjoy and to share in that love that existed from eternity. You and I, and this is incredible, guys. You and I are invited into that relationship. 
We're invited into that relationship with God to know and be known by the creator of the universe. And I think sometimes we say that, at least maybe I'm speaking for myself. Sometimes we say that, but we do not realize or think about the incredible, unbelievable implication of that. Right? We go about our days nonchalantly, not thinking about the fact that even when I pray, I am literally connected to the creator of the universe. I am known by him and I get to know him. Why is that? Because God wanted to share his love. He wanted to open it up and, and to bring us in, to adopt us as his children and to love us and to care for us and to have a relationship with us. While Jesus is the only eternal son, you and I, as followers of his, are adopted into his family. That is our identity. That is our identity. And so this helps us to understand why it's been said that we cannot talk about the father unless we begin with the son. Jesus has come to make the father known. In John chapter 1, verse 18, John says this, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, who who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. If you want to know what God is like, okay, Yeah, that was supposed to be on the slides. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Is God kind? These are all questions I think we ask. Is God kind? Is God actually patient? Is God just? Is God merciful? Is God actually slow to get angry? Right? Because we read about that in Exodus 34, 6. All of those things. Is God actually that way? Is God compassionate? Does God love me? Does God have patience for me? Does God want what's best for me? When I look to the person and the work of Jesus, the answer is unequivocally yes to all of those things. When we see in the Old Testament, God say things about his character. We can see him act on that and we can see him be consistent. But when we look to Jesus, we see it most fully lived out. As Josh White says that the heavens declare God's glory, but Jesus is the revelation of his love. And so that's great for Paul. You know, he says all of these things about Jesus. I mean, we could even, again, we read Colossians together. That's great for Paul, but did Jesus actually see himself that way? Is that how Jesus saw himself? Because that's been one of the questions throughout history, right? That people said, well, Jesus never actually said he was God. That's, I've heard that many times people say that. Jesus never actually claimed to be God. I've heard some people say, you know, even they're trying to reinterpret Paul. Some people just want to throw Paul completely out because they read these passages and they say, oh, no, 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 no. Paul, Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Look to the words of Jesus. He never said he was God. Well, did he? I don't know. I, look, okay, I do know. Sorry, I don't know why I said I don't know. <laughs> Let's look at this for a moment. Just two passages, okay? Two passages. We're not going to do an exhaustive 
you know, an exhaustive look at the Gospels. We're just going to survey two passages. The first one is this. In John chapter 8, verses 53 to 59, the Pharisees ask him, who do you think you are? I love that question. That's probably a question we should ask more often. Who does Jesus think he is? Right? Who do you think you are? But just don't say it like the Pharisees. Jesus answered, If I want glory for myself, it doesn't count, but it is my Father who will glorify me. You say, He is our God, but you don't even know Him. I know Him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know Him and obey Him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Now, maybe you could read Jesus' words and go, well, maybe we're misinterpreting that. Maybe that's not what he really said, except the Pharisees seem to know exactly what he's saying. You don't normally just pick up stones to stone somebody. I mean, I've never picked up stones to stone anybody anyway, but like, I just imagine that's not something you do lightly. That's not usually like first reaction is like, somebody made me mad, let's stone them, right? That's like, but like, that's their reaction. That's a pretty extreme, serious reaction to have to somebody who's not claiming to be God, right? But no, Jesus is making an extreme claim about who he is and the Pharisees understand exactly what he's saying. Now, second one. Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 66. This is Jesus in his trial before he is crucified. He is standing before Caiaphas, the high priest. And it says this, Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Again, some people will say, see, he was asked the question and he actually, he didn't answer it. He just said he was the son of man. He didn't say he was the son of God. The problem is, is that the Pharisees' reaction tells us again another story. What is blasphemy? It's saying something against God, right? They accuse him of blasphemy. Um, and they crucify him for blasphemy. One of the reasons. And why is that? Why do those words shake the Pharisees to the core and the religious leaders to the core that they are like completely, like we can kill him now. We've got all we need. Daniel chapter 7 is what Jesus quotes. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says in his vision he, that continued, he saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations in the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. In other places, God says things like, I will not give my glory to another, right? He says all of these things. So when Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7 to the Pharisees, there is no question 
to them who Jesus is claiming to be. He says what Daniel wrote about there, that's him. And you know, interestingly enough, right, when we get to the Jesus' ascension, how does it say Jesus ascended? He went up through the clouds <laughs> and disappeared. A lot of people would say that's Jesus acting out Daniel 7. He is ascending to the throne, just like Daniel saw in Daniel 7. And so we see even there that Jesus seems to at least indicate that he is God. And the verse goes on to say that it's not something to cling to, right? That, that, he, that this, he emptied himself. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Your passage may say something to grasp, but it carries with it this idea of exploitation. He didn't see being God as something that he should exploit. He didn't use his deity in a way that would be unfair. Nevertheless, he was and is the eternal word made flesh. He is God with us. He is not created by God. He is the one God revealed to us in the second person of the Trinity. And he came in human form. Though God, he did not count equality with God as something to exploit. Instead, he came and was a human just like you and me. He played fair. He played by the rules so that he could be our mediator our Savior. He is Jesus Christ, the perfect man. I think this is again, now that was the longest, <laughs> the longest part. The next parts are going to be shorter. And, and again, some of these will be addressed more as we, as we go on. But he is Jesus Christ, the perfect man. I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus emptied himself and became human. Instead, verse 7 says, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus was not just kind of human, sort of human. He was fully human. Like the, like the Gnostics wanted to believe, Jesus did not just pretend to be human. He was completely a human being. Now, again, as I said, we're going to leave that alone until next week. But I think about the Christmas, my favorite Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Right? And in it, Charles Wesley writes, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And as the author of Hebrews says, this high priest of ours, because he became fully human, understands our weakness. He faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus, that is his human given name by his parents. He became a human being so that he could understand 
our weaknesses, so that he could die for our sin, so that we will receive mercy and find grace when we need it the most. And we hold these two things in tension. Jesus was fully God, and Jesus was fully human. I should say Jesus is. (laughs) Probably be a better way to say that. Jesus is fully God and is fully human. And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. One sermon, uh, sorry, I should say, I wouldn't point out. He didn't just take the form of a man, though, either. He took the form of a servant. And I think that's important to note. Right? Jesus could have come as, a, uh, you know, as royalty. He could have come you know, from a very wealthy background. He could have done all of these things, but instead he entered humanity at its lowest place. The guy was born in a stable, for goodness sake. Right? Jesus humbled himself and took the form of a servant, but not just the way that he was born. Jesus says he came to serve and not be served. He came to rescue the world from sin and death, to show us what God looks like and to be the way to him. One sermon I heard once pointed out that in, in Hebrews 12, 2, right, in exhorting us to, to look to Jesus, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what the... What the uh, minister said was you know and it just it stuck with me is he said you are the joy set before him why did jesus do everything he did why did he become a human being why did he live the life of you know a, a, a sinless life where he taught people who weren't even grateful why did he go around healing and why did he go around teaching about the kingdom of god why was he crucified on our behalf why Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. You are that joy. You are why Jesus came. And not just you. (laughs) Me and everybody else. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He came as a servant and this brings us then to our final part, okay? And maybe one way to say it is this. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? I mean, that's, I think we all probably know that, right? But like sometimes it kind of seems like that, where it almost just like, you know, Christ becomes Jesus' last name, not really something we think a whole lot about. But here's the thing. Christ was a really important title. Another word to use for that is Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Another word again would be Jesus is king. Jesus is the king. That's another way. Again, we could translate Christ. And so we find in the creed, it says, uh, he is our Lord. Again, same connotations there. But even more than that, when the creed uses the word Lord, it connects it to the Old Testament. And it connects us then too. Paul here uses, says that Jesus, that every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? Which connects us then to the Old Testament. Now, 
we see that he is the Christ, the sovereign one, our Lord. He is the one who deserves our allegiance. Like I said, Lord connects us to the Old Testament, but so does Messiah. Because it is a term that connects, us, that connects Jesus to the Old Testament Savior of the Jewish people. But we see not only of the Jewish people, even in the Old Testament we begin to see this, not only of the Jewish people, but of the world. He is the predicted one. The one with whom the whole of the law and the prophets would hang. And the one who the whole of the law and the prophets would point to. He is the rescuer. He is the redeemer. He is the Lord. Now, really important thing to see that Paul is doing. Again, this kind of, again, is going to be something that I think points us to Paul's view of God. That Paul viewed God not only as Lord, but as God. Okay, because he says here, again, I'm going to read, I'm going to read um, verses 9 and 10 and 11. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, in Isaiah, and somehow, I think it's 20, Isaiah 24. I somehow didn't connect, uh, catch it in my notes. Say, Does it actually tell me down here? All right. You're just going to have to trust me for a moment that it is in there. Oh, I have it right here. Isaiah 45, 23. Sorry. In Isaiah 45, 23, we read a really important verse. So I'm glad I wrote it down. Now I'm going to read 22 as well. Here's what it says. And this is very specifically talking about Yahweh, talking about God. Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name. I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. Now, does that sound familiar? You guys, either Paul is really wrong, or Jesus is God. I don't know how to interpret that, honestly. And I, I don't know how to interpret that any other way. As you know, I pointed out before, and it's in Isaiah again, it's, it's just uh, a couple of chapters before, I believe it's in Isaiah 43, where he says, I will not give my glory to another. Either Paul is insane, or Jesus is God. Because that's exactly how he interprets that Isaiah passage. All right? He is the sovereign Lord. He is the name above all names because he is the only name by which you and I will be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You and I are often tempted to say that Caesar is Lord. Maybe not those literal words, right? 
but to look to politics as a savior, right? Maybe in Ireland we're a little more conditioned against that to be like, we, all we have to do is look at the HSE and the way that's organized. Um, you know, or, you know, anyway. But we're tempted to think, well, if we just elect this right guy, then he's going to solve all the problems. Or, you know, he'll fix the road or whatever. You know, if we just elect the right guy. Or, or maybe, you know, we're tempted to think of all sorts of other things. My job, my boss, my hobbies, all of those things. It's as if we, we, we want to burn the incense to them and say, Caesar is Lord and throw it on and say, but no, there is no other Lord. Jesus is Lord. Saying Jesus is Lord too is not just my truth, it is the truth. Sometimes we're tempted to compartmentalize or individualize my faith and say, well, Jesus is my Lord. No, he is not your, just your Lord. He is the Lord, the sovereign Lord over all creation. And one day every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the reality, guys. Jesus is Lord. And no amount of us not believing it or not really thinking it matters. We're not going to stop him being Lord. Now, we may not want him as Savior. Lots of people may not want him as Savior. And that's the reality. I mean, we know a lot, plenty of people that have no desire for Jesus to be Savior. But guess what? He's the Lord. But I think sometimes, switching that around, is that we like the idea of Jesus as our Savior. We just don't like the idea of him as Lord, even as Christians. Too many of us accept that Jesus is Savior but not as Lord. But this passage tells us we can't have it both ways. To say Jesus is Lord, then, though too and we're coming to the end here, is to recognize our need for him. That we can't do it on our own. It's to submit to his rule and his reign, to submit to his authority over our lives. And that is the life of a Christian, right? Learning more and more to submit my will to him and to conform to his will. But again, the reality of that, guys, that we already talked about kind of at the beginning, is that that's where we find life. It's not constraining to ruin everybody's fun, but it's to bring life. It's to bring us in alignment with creation, to be the people you were created to be, to not become less of yourself as you submit yourself to Jesus, but actually to become who you were created to be. And as we submit and give ourselves to Jesus, that is the reality. And that's why we pray every single Sunday that prayer of God's sovereignty, that prayer that Jesus is Lord that says, not my will, but yours be done. You guys, that is a prayer of God's sovereignty. That is a recognition that we pray every week that God is sovereign that he is the Lord and that it is his will on earth we want to see done, not our own. Not our own. We're called to give ourselves to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior, God made flesh, to see him and to know him 
is to see and to know God. And that is what we are invited to, you and me. I think it's important just as we finish, and this is the last, last thing, so, okay, okay, that was a lot, is to say in all of this, I think one of the things that we see is that there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. There's not some secret God hiding behind Jesus who's evil and vindictive and just kind of, you know, Jesus is some sort of weird puppet that he holds up. It's like, no. To see Jesus is to see God. There is no God behind the back of Jesus. If you and I want to know the Father, it comes through Jesus. We look to Jesus. And if we want to receive the Holy Spirit, if you and I want to receive the Holy Spirit, to live from the power of the Holy Spirit, then it comes by confessing Jesus as Lord. And so, as we come to communion, that's what we're about to do. Right? We come together every week. And communion is something that as a church, it is a rhythm that we do every week. And every week, it is a place where we come and we say, Jesus is Lord. We submit to Jesus. We say, you know what? This is who you are, Jesus. You are the God who gave your life for me. You are the sovereign Lord, come, become flesh, and dwelt in, in human form on earth. You were buried, you, or sorry, you were crucified, you were buried, and you rose again. We recognize that truth. And guys, like I said, our, our tendency as human beings is to want, I think, to kind of push against the rules. I think we're told that. Yet, honestly, and I know maybe it sounds sort of like kitsch to say, but like, I honestly think taking communion, and this is maybe because I do like to re- push against things and rebel, I honestly think communion is one of the most punk rock things that as human beings we do on a weekly basis. Because guess what? Every time we do that, we're giving up ourselves and saying Jesus is Lord, and you know, nobody else is doing that. We recognize that we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus. And that it is life-giving. It is truth. It is healing. And so we bring ourselves to the foot of the cross at communion and recognize that the crucified one is the one who now sits on the throne. And because of that, you and I are sons and daughters. We are adopted into the family of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, that Jesus is Lord.